Uh, if this is your first summer in London from overseas, well, welcome. And yes, this is about normal. Those early weeks of uh, sunshine, cloudless skies may have given you a false impression. But the last uh, week or so has been more like it, hasn't it? Uh, what it has proved is that two things are essential uh, to survive the British summer, to protect yourself. And that is your sun cream and your umbrella. You need both of them. And when selecting them, uh, you need to have an adequate factor of sun cream uh, for when the sun does break out and an umbrella that doesn't have holes in it. The things that uh, we choose for our protection need to work properly or they're worse than useless. The big theme in uh, tonight's passage is protection. Come back with me to uh, Mark chapter 6 if you've closed it. It's on page 1008 of our church Bibles. And let's see uh, why it's about protection. Last week, we left John the Baptist in prison with a threat to his life, but under Herod's protection. Let me read verses 17 to 20 again to remind us of where we're up to. So the bit just before tonight's reading, verse 17 of chapter 6. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So here we have John the Baptist in prison for challenging Herod and Herodias about their unlawful marriage. Now, Herodias takes it all quite hard and decides the best solution is just to kill John. But Herod, according to verse 20, is conflicted. And so he decides to protect John. Though, note, John doesn't ask for that. Herod just can't seem to kind of square the circle. He likes to listen to John, but he's in moral confusion. He's greatly puzzled. There's the word of God through the prophet John telling him to repent. And then there's Herodias, the wife that he has risked his reputation for clamoring for blood. So the question that we're left with at the end of verse 20 is something like this. Is Herod going to protect John or not? Or rather, actually, the question is, how come Herod doesn't protect John? You see, at verse 16, if you look at that, Mark has decided to spoil the ending for us. He tells us that Herod beheads John. You can imagine the end-of-year review in the office. I see, Herod, that one of your objectives was to protect John the Baptist. You've written on your form that you beheaded him. Maybe let's explore how you feel that went and see if we can learn any lessons for next time. But it's not funny, is it? It is tragic. Herod beheads him, even though 
He wants to protect him. Let's uh, pick out how that happened, looking at Herod's sins, which leads to that tragic outcome. And as we do, let's ask ourselves which one of the ones that we're going to see sort of chimes with us most. So the first problem is there in verse 21, if you look at it. Herod is self-centered. Now, I don't know how you celebrated your last uh, birthday, but Herod decides to um, throw himself a big party, verse 21. Now, I don't think this is a warning against birthday parties per se, or even organizing them for yourself. No, the first part of the problem is actually that Herod seems to do it to kind of entrench his power. It's a sort of normal move for a first century despot. He calls together all the powerful in the kingdom who have to kind of drop everything and attend him at his party. It's pretty calculating and self-centered. And then some way through the party, Herodias's daughter comes in and dances for her stepfather and his guests. Picture the scene of verse 22, if you will. Men lounging around, having eaten and drunk too much, leering at this girl who has been sent out to dance for them. It's like the worst of stag parties or boys' nights out that sadly do still go on in dark corners. It is drunkenness and lust. We'll come back to the horror of this scene in a moment when we've come to see just how badly Herod fails. Like the big man that Herod thought he was, he wants to impress his guests with his generosity, verses 22 and 23. The message is sort of, stick with me, and if you please me, you too will get rewarded. Again, it's an exploitation of his powerful position, but it is really utter foolishness. Let me read verse 23 again, just to see that. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. What a rash and foolish promise that is. King Xerxes in the Old Testament made a similar promise three times to Queen Esther. Now, he ruled half the known world and he was an absolute uh, monarch. Herod is not even a candle to Xerxes' floodlight. He is only a client king of Rome who has no power to give away even a town of his kingdom to this girl without Caesar's say-so. But as soon as the words are out of his mouth, events seem to be out of his control. Verse 24 and 25, there's a sort of consultation between Herodias and her daughter where the mother seizes her moment. Now, we don't know why uh, the girl adds the morbid detail about the dish or the urgency. Perhaps it's a sign that she's kind of getting into the spirit of things. But maybe her mother told her to do it. Maybe it's actually just another sad indication of her youth. She just wanted to impress the grown-ups. Now, whatever the reason, Herod recognizes that he's in a difficult Spot. It's the classic kind of rock and hard place situation, verse 26. He doesn't want to kill John. 
Remember verse 20, he knows that John is a righteous and holy man, and he likes their chats. But here is his next mistake, his next sin. He is a coward. He does not want to look weak in front of all his supporters. Perhaps he wants to maintain that reputation for honouring his word, so that the, the deal that I spoke about, if you please me, I will reward you, that that can hold. But I think it's actually that he just knows he can't afford for them to think that he is afraid of John, that he thinks John might actually be right all along. Weakness and indecision were not popular traits in ancient kings, and Herod seems to have feared for his position. And so, verse 27, the culmination of it all, he rejects God's word expressed through God's prophet. And then the denouement is rapid, bang, bang, if you will excuse the phrase. The executioner is dispatched to the prison, that he then dispatches John's head. The lifeless head is brought in on a plate. And given to the girl, who gives it to her mother. All to honour a foolish oath. But the only true honour in this whole passage is John's, isn't it? As verse 29, his disciples bury his headless corpse. So there we have it. Herod's downward spiral is one of self-centeredness, of drunkenness and lust, of foolishness and cowardice, and a rejection of God and his word. It leads to a horrific murder of a righteous man. Now, we mustn't let ourselves off the hook. So again, I ask, which of those ones, if we could have them back on the screen, thanks, Which of those ones resonated most with you? That is a question that is worth thinking about. But I don't think that's the reason that Mark relates this story here. So to misquote Shakespeare, it's a tale told about a fool full of sin and sadness. But what does it signify? Well, we're going to draw two lessons from what we've seen, uh, one brief and one a little longer. The first is this, the danger of hardening your heart, the danger of hardening your heart. Last week, Charlie asked us if we might be like Herod in the first part of the episode that we looked at last week. Herod likes listening to John but he would not repent. Do you know that everything you've heard about Jesus is actually true, but you are unwilling to put your trust in him, to turn and repent? Well, see what happens next. It's not pretty. Herod stands as a warning to those who hear God's word and yet reject it. This is an outworking of the parable of the sower from chapter 4, 
where the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire of other things choke the word and so make it unfruitful. The plant never springs up. In our Roots Bible studies this week, we looked at Genesis uh, chapter 4. Like Cain, here is sin crouching at Herod's door, desiring to master him. Like Cain, Herod gives in and it leads to murder. So please don't be like Herod and reject God's words. Do not harden your hearts and let the sin monster at the door come in and lead you away from Jesus and the life that he offers. If that's you, if you think you are in danger of doing that, do come and talk to me or talk to someone who came with you. They would love to talk to you about that. That's our first lesson. The danger of hardening your heart to God's word. Here's our second danger. The danger of trusting worldly power. Now, I want us to lift our eyes from ourselves uh, now. This collection of sin and selfishness that we've just seen would be bad enough in a sort of normal person. But Herod is meant to be the king. In fact, he's the sort of most obvious candidate at the time to be king of the Jews. Did you notice that from halfway through verse 22, every time that Herod is mentioned, it actually just calls him the king. It's there four times, including once where our Bibles, uh, reasonably enough, just put he in verse 27. We're meant to remember throughout this slide to this evil act that Herod is king. King Herod is actually just the last in a long line, stretching back to Adam, of those who've been candidates to be God's king. Each one has had the choice to listen to God's word and to live his way, or to listen to the voice of the world and to suppress the truth. And each of those candidates, at some point, has decided to trust their own way with disastrous consequences for God's people. Herod is a failed king who fears losing his position, and so he listens to Herodias. He utterly lacks the self-control that he needs to fulfill his role. He takes his brother's wife, and then he allows the grotesque and grisly scenes of our verses to happen. Now, God's king should have known God's law. He was meant to read it and study it and obey it. Herod should not have taken Herodias. He should, have not, he should not have treated a 12-year-old girl made in God's image as a plaything, as he does here. He should not have agreed to her request. He doesn't have to. Rather, as one knowing and upholding God's law, he should have said, no, such a brutal act to a righteous man does not reflect the Lord God. I will only give you what is good for you. 
In short, God's king should protect his people, even from their own sin. Now, we started our service with Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 11. Let me read them to us again. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. It's a beautiful picture of God coming to his people with power, with a mighty right arm. But did you notice what he uses that right arm for? It's there in verse 11. He gently acts as a shepherd to his people, tending, gathering, carrying, leading. Herod is nothing like that. He utterly fails to protect John, even though, verse 20, he wants to do that. He fails in his duty to lead his own household, let alone the nation. Now, John wasn't looking for protection, was he? He was uh, God's faithful and fearless prophet, speaking God's truth to power. And he ends up like so many of his predecessors silenced by that power. It's a lesson that the truth is worth living and dying for. That's an important lesson, isn't it, as the Church of England is doing its best to silence God's truth. But I don't really want us to go down that line this evening, because I don't think that we are John in this story. And we're not even really Herod, are we? We're not a prophet, and we're not a king. We're those who witnessed the events, the people of verse 21. Or perhaps we're just the ordinary people of Herod's kingdom. Imagine the scene. It's a a year on, and you're one of Herod's uh, commanders, or hangers-on, or whatever it is. And it's nearly Herod's birthday again. Boom. The invitation lands on the mat. And your mind goes back to that wicked night. Do you go this time? How do you know it's not going to be your head on a plate, awarded as a prize this year? Yes, he said he would protect you in exchange for loyalty. But Herod clearly isn't a king to trust for protection. He can't do it even when he has the power and he wants to. Now, we live in quite different times, don't we? So where does this bite for us today? What is it that we're tempted to trust in for protection in exchange for our loyalty? Well, it's not kings and prime ministers, really, is it? Herod is a worldly power. Now, there are lots of things in our world that claim to be uh, powerful, and uh, to a degree, the place where we see that will differ from person to person. But I'd like to suggest one as a sort of worked example. It's money and spending. 
Now, if uh, as I unpack this example, it doesn't really resonate with you, then spend some time later thinking about how something else does, where you see power. Now, I guess there are probably uh, two relatively distinct groups here when I uh, thought different things when I said uh, money and, uh, and spending. One group will be those who are comfortably well off, maybe with a house and some savings, a good pension pot, whatever it is. Now, if you think that might be you, just keep listening while I address the second uh, group, because I think that the application is pretty similar for both. The second group will be those who are really struggling with the cost of living. Perhaps you're thinking, Phil, just don't talk to me about how money can protect me. How I wish I had more to see if that was actually true. Now, that is a valid point. The rising cost of living does feel like a crisis, doesn't it? But I think part of the reason that we are feeling like that about it is that we've become so completely enthralled to the power of consumerism. We are what we buy or the experiences that we consume. We can't imagine cutting back because we've been brought up to think that things will only get better and we will be able to buy more stuff. My generation was sort of promised that if we work hard and we get the right qualifications and then we maybe bide our time in the first years of our career, we will get all the things that we wanted. The house, the car, the holidays, whatever it is. And for many of us, that feels quite a long way off. The generation above us were promised uh, the same thing, and many did get it, though by no means all. Now, whichever group you're in, or if in reality you're in actually quite a different situation, you can probably see how money feels like it can give you protection from the storms of this life. But if you have suffered or you've watched uh, someone suffer, whether that's illness or relationship uh, breakdown or some other affliction, you'll know that money cannot dig you out of every hole. It may soften the blow sometimes, but it cannot take that blow away. The power of the consumerist society promises much if we give it our loyalty expressed in how we spend our money protection from sadness or loneliness, the problems of this life, whatever it is. But it does actually deliver very little. Instead, consumerism degrades. It uses sex as a lure, exploiting young girls as Herodias exploited her own daughter. You only have to walk down Oxford Street, don't you? Uh, to see that. In the news this week, there was a story uh, about some billboards, including one near a school, uh, featuring a model in a bra advertising her social media accounts. What I found particularly disturbing about the story was actually uh, the response from the uh, Advertising standard, Standards Agency. Basically, they said, it's no big deal. That is just what advertising is now. Consumerism degrades. Consumerism also uh, discards the truth, as John was discarded 
by Herod. How many people have been discarded as sort of unseen victims of scams or of the powerful getting their way by bending the truth to their own ends? It discards the truth. And consumerism destroys, as Herod was destroyed in rejecting Jesus, as we see in the hours leading up to the cross. Here, in our passage, he chose to ignore, to reject John's warning. But in fact, if you look back, our section at verse 14 starts with a question about Jesus's identity. Who is Jesus? In rejecting God's word through John and giving himself over to sin and self, we understand why it is that Herod's followers were part of the plot to kill Jesus that we're first told about back in chapter 3, verse 6. If John's message to Herod was just unpalatable, then so must Jesus's be. Consumerism does not like Jesus's message. The promises of protection from our consumerist society are directly in opposition to Jesus's promises. Wholeheartedly buying into them puts us in danger of destruction. So consumerism degrades, it discards the truth, and it destroys. But I don't think the solution is to renounce uh, the use of money or to give it all away and live as hermits, though we should, of course, live generous lives. Rather, it's actually a question about our attitude. Here are some questions that I'm going to uh, try to ask myself in the next few weeks. So first, when I'm buying something, I'm going to ask, what do I think that this is going to do for me? What is it promising me? Do I think it will protect me from something? That's the first question. And the second diagnostic question is this. If I actually can't afford something, how do I then react? Is it disappointment or anger? Or actually, am I content? I think that is possible with God's spirit. Now, picking out consumerism was just a worked example of naked worldly power, a sort of king of our day and our age. There are, of course, other kings, other examples that I could have used. But I hope we see the danger of trusting in these kings. Which is why it is great news that Jesus is a better king, isn't it? which is the conclusion that I think Mark actually wants us to draw. Last week, we had two prisons, John's physical prison and Herod's fear. Now we have two feasts given by two kings laid side by side. So we have Herod on the one hand, lavish, privileged, brutal, tragic. And then we have Jesus's feast. We're going to look at his miraculous feeding of the crowds next week. It's the next passage. But just look at verse 34 with me as we close. With the words of Isaiah 40 that we 
heard before ringing in your ears. So verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus is the compassionate king who sees sheep without a shepherd and he protects them and he provides for them, even to the point of laying down his own life. If that is news to you, do come back next week and hear that episode preached to us by Rico. But as we close, let us thank the Lord our God for how unlike King Herod, King Jesus actually is. We praise God for our compassionate King who provides and protects. In a moment, we will uh, pray together. I'll just ask the band uh, to come up, uh, a moment for them to come up, and then we will close in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for King Jesus, who protects and provides, so unlike King Herod and all the worldly powers that we see. We pray that this week we would come to the Lord Jesus, that kind and compassionate King. In his name we pray. Amen.